It is so much fun to be here today with Corey and Ted, and we are going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and the Space Trilogy. And at some point, Kyle might join us. Um, I don't know, it might he might be too busy today to get in here, but um, we had talked before, Ted and Kyle and I had talked before about um, the third one of the Space Trilogy, That Hidden Strength, and we decided we should do the whole trilogy. So. My first question today is, of the three books of the of the space, well, first of all, let me ask this question. What do you think was the main theme of the trilogy? What do you think was the main thing that, that C.S. Lewis was trying to get across? Oh, main thing. Uh, I'm, There's I'm a gonna, lot of things. Yeah, well, okay, so here's, here's one that I'll start out with, Karen, which is funny, is that I think that he would actually roll over in his grave at the fact that we all call it the space trilogy. Um, because I think that he would have rather it be called the cosmic trilogy or the heavenly trilogy, or maybe the ransom trilogy. Um, because at least in the first two books, his whole, I think one of his primary notions is to get rid of the idea of space, right? So that when you get out of say our beleaguered planet, that you, you just end up in this sort of dead vacuum, but rather that, past earth there is not there's there's more life and joy and so i i think maybe his main point would be some well i think his main point is something just is like is he's trying to tell a fairy story he's trying to tell a modern fairy story i think that that's what he's trying to do and so he he's using space as a way to move um sort of this everyman character ransom who is the same kind of person as c.s lewis right he's a he's like he's a Oxford Dawn to move him through these through these fantastic scenarios to give us say another look at the world and sneak some of the really important ideas in say from the discarded image that he writes about in the discarded image and um, the abolition of man so that's the positive side is what he's talking about in the discarded image and the negative side the abolition of man I think he's trying to present both of those to, those to us in a way where we are they're palatable enough to us to consider them in our own lives rather than seeing them say as merely academic or, or political. Yes. Yeah, I think I would, I would agree with that assessment. Maybe the way that I was thinking of describing it is I think he's really got this project going on where he wants to baptize the modern imagination and he wants to retrain mm. the way that we think to be able to see by way of the patterns that are more reflective of reality because there's this idea that the way that we think culturally has become more and more abstracted from and divorced from reality and the way that reality is filled with all these, these symbols, these patterns. Um, and, and spirits. That, that can, yeah. Well, yes, yes. And the, well, yeah. We'll get into that. Won't we? Um, but yeah, in the, in like in the way he describes space, he wants to, he wants to change and rejigger uh, kind of as a, as an exercise and also I think there's a practical element to it as well. He wants his readers to learn how to see the world in a different way. And he, he did that by writing fairy stories, exactly like, like Ted is saying. So now, this is, I almost see this like a precursor to his ultimate project was, which was the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Like he was grasping for a lot of the same things, I think. Yeah. And Corey, I, I'll just I just want to take note of your your term baptize the imagination because he used that term about himself encountering 
George McDonald for the first time, right? He said, when I think it was, it was Fantastic when he read that in, on a train station as a young man. He said that even though he, had, he was not converted, his, his imagination had been baptized. So I love, I love the notion that he is sort of trying to carry that, pass that on. What he received from George MacDonald, he's trying to pass on to the rest of us, which I think is, boy, if you read The Great Divorce, that really comes through that he, he would like to be George MacDonald for the young people um, around him. So, yeah, that's for me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what what do you think about that, Karen? I mean, because I think I could come out. I'm, I'm not as deep a thinker as you guys. So to, me, <laughs> to me, I think it. if I just simplify it down to one point, it would be trying to illustrate um, the consequences of the initial lie in the garden. <clears throat> yes. And, and how it plays out. And um. I see that like, well, okay. So the next question would be of the three books, which one do you think best exemplifies your concept of what the trilogy is about? I think it would be a mistake to take any individual book as encapsulating the wholeness of it. I know my favorite one, if I want to put it that way, is definitely the middle one, Paralandra, which Ted and I have talked about a little bit before. But you almost have to understand all three of them, even though I don't know if he had this in mind when he started writing them. Um, they're a whole, all three of them together. We talked about last time how uh, he actually follows the same pattern as Dante's Divine Comedy in these three books. And you can actually look at them as an inversion of, you know, it, Dante starts at the bottom and rises to the top through the divine comedy here it's actually the opposite he starts at the top and works his way to the bottom as, as the books progress but i think you know I, I would suspect that he did that intentionally and so there's a progression from book to book even though the content and the subject matter is is pretty unique within each book the pattern that it follows was was an intentional one and you can you can look at each book thematically in the same way that that um uh, that Ward talks about in Planet Narnia, how you can look at each Narnia book as a, a theme or having a principality or like a, a spirit that you are learning to see by way of as you read that particular story. I think it's the same with these three books and it's more explicit. In fact, it's easier to see because there's a very masculine martial sense in Malacandra, the book about Mars. And there's this feminine sense in the book of Venus, which is Paralandra. And in the final book, it brings them together in marriage and it redefines, or not really. His idea in progressing through this is to help us understand what um, what marriage is supposed to be and how that's kind of a, a fundamental symbol of reality. Which so it's, for, an unmarried, for an unmarried man, he does a pretty good job of. Right? <laughs> I don't know how flawless. he had these insights. It's not flawless, but he's got quite a bit of insight for someone who hadn't been married at that point. Um yeah, Karen, I actually want to go back to your, your notion about the consequences of the fall, because, you know, that's a, definitely just something that's brought up a lot in writing. And one of the, but but it's almost always approached from the from the side of this is what things look like when they're broken, which I think is actually quite a bit easier to deal with. Um, it, it's maybe more obvious, I would say. And and you you get this. I you was get thinking this. more in terms about uh, <clears throat> this is how to break something. <clears throat> well, so 
Okay, interesting. So what I was going to say is, you, you see this bringing up the Divine Comedy and the fact that like everyone reads the Inferno and then very maybe 10% of those people go on to read the rest of it because there's something accessible and obvious about brokenness. But what's really interesting to me about, one of the things that's really interesting to me about the Divine Comedy, or about the, the, the Ransom Trilogy is that Lewis is actually approaching it from the other side and and doing his his darndest to actually present a picture of unfallenness, which is much, much harder to do. And if you if you want some insight into this, you can go and read uh, A Preface to Paradise Lost, where Lewis actually spends a lot of time dealing with Milton's discussion of pre-fall temptation, which if you start to get into that, you realize is a very complicated issue. And so I think Lewis ends up falling down on the side of a lot of other people where there's this act, like in Milton's Paradise Lost, there's a fall before the fall where Eve already is giving into these wrong things before she even meets the snake. And that doesn't seem consistent with the biblical narrative. And so I think Lewis in Paralandra was attempting something like, how do you write about the temptation of an innocent creature in a way that he considered to be more sophisticated than Milton? And I think he's right. I don't, I think in the end, I'm always going to fall down on the side of what the Bible presents to us, which is that it happened. Like that, I think that there's some, maybe some shift in, in existence that precludes us from really having insight into how can an innocent creature truly be tempted and it be a real temptation um, and not either inescapable or, or, or um, let's say deterministically escaped um, that there's some real peril there. And so I wonder if, you know, it almost makes me wonder if Lewis was doing some kind of unconscious pun when he named it Paralandra, because the, I, mean, I think the greatest peril in all three of the books is in Paralandra. Um, uh, it, it's, it's the one, but I, I, yeah, to go, but I really like Corey's notion that you have, and this is the one that I would definitely read as well, that you have the, a present, a sort of a narrative presentation of masculinity in the first book, a narrative presentation of femininity in the second book, and then a an attempt to work out not the heavenly relation between male and female but the earthly relationship between male and female and mm. that hideous strength and it's about it and, and you know when you when you're reading through them there is a very strange jump of it's not until halfway through the book that you get to any of the characters that you remember from the first two like it feels it's and you've got all it's you've got all these different intertwining plots and you're jumping around between people and there's so many characters compared to the first, the, the first two books are very linear and they have a very limited scope of characters in, in comparison to the third one, which again, you could see as a, as a negative, but if if Lewis's project to take, to take Ward's notion in Planet Narnia, that Lewis's project in his two big fictional series, the, the, the Ransom Trilogy and the Chronicles of Narnia was to give us an opportunity to say walk in the atmosphere of the heavens in the heavenly spheres for a little bit then i'm thinking about the part in the silver chair when jill is has a conversation with aslan up on the mountain and then she goes down into narnia and like the thick the thick air of the world confuses her and so i think there's actually i think you can see let's say the purity and clarity of the first two books in terms of their narrative in contrast to the complicated, intertwining, intersubjective, sort of, I mean, just like tangled growth of the third book as something like the movement out of the heavens into the rather poisoned atmosphere of the earth. 
and that that's actually what it's like to come out of the heavens and come down and try to figure things out here. And, you know, you don't, there are any, are there any, there's no conversations with angels, with the, with the, with the, with the, with the elder law in the last book. You're not privy to any of those conversations. God doesn't speak directly to anyone the way that he does to many characters in the, in the, in the first two books. And so there's, it's something more like, okay, well, given those first two books, here's what earth is like. And it looks a whole lot like what you and I are used to. There's just, let's say, the incalculable added to it. It's not, you don't have the sort of pure clarity um, and, and glory of the heavens that you get in the first two books. So, Well, there, there's certainly a preface to that in Paralandra, though, <clears throat> that I want to talk about in a minute. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but first, um, this whole idea about the pre-fall fall, I'm not familiar. I, I did study um, Milton in my graduate work, um, but I can't remember what you're talking about in <clears throat> that where he might have been talking about a pre-fall fall in there. <clears throat> I, I don't remember because it's a long time ago I did my graduate work. Yeah. But I, I did run into something interesting today when I was reading the scripture. Um, and I was reading... Um, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, where it's talking about Christ giving up, um, emptying himself and becoming obedient even unto death. And I, I looked up obedient. Well, because I had heard this before that hearing when, when, when the word hearing is used in the Bible, it typically means obedience that it's not just hearing, but it's related to obedience. So I looked up the obedience there. It's used as obedience in every single translation. But when you look at the Greek, it actually means like hyper listening, very, very attentive listening. Mm. And then it's translated yeah. as obedience. So then I thought, well, that's interesting because I had also just read this verse from Romans, I think 519, where the, it talks about the disobedience of man. And that disobedience is contrary listening. <laughs> so it's against, in, in other words, it's inadequate listening. Mm. And there is this thing in the, in the um, Genesis story where Eve misstates what God said. And whether that was because she was inadequately listening or whether it's because she modified what God said when she was speaking to the snake, there is something there. <clears throat> so I don't know if it's a pre-fall fall, but I do think that there's something about, there's something really important about attention and listening attentively. Well, isn't that straight, right? I mean, Strake's doing the same thing where he's picking up this whole religious language and structure, but he just, let's say he, he hears the parts he wants to hear and not the rest of them. And, and there's something, let's say, particularly dangerous about having heard part of it and not none of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Karen, as you were talking, I was, I just the other day listened to your interview with Neil DeGrade and Drew Garrett. And my goodness, this idea that, that there's something about music and about listening, that, that element of attentiveness that's directly linked 
to obedience. I'm, I don't, I don't have a complete thought formed in my head, but it's that you think about the difference between seeing something and hearing something. And when you hear it, it's got more of a direct connection to your emotional reaction to it. Right. And so it's, it skips the propositional aspect of knowing, right. And, th- and I've been learning about this idea that's particularly strong in the, in the Eastern church where you're obedient prior to understanding. And I, I think probably a lot of Christians would, would agree with that idea that, that that's a value, but there's a sense in which by hearing you're receiving something more directly that you are called to be obedient to and to, per- but the, but the perception is also different. It's like a thing that's just, shaping you as you come into contact with it without you having the consciousness you know it skips the consciousness aspect of it if if that i don't know if that like well i mean that's a perfect illustration of what's happening in perilandra when the unman keeps talking to the lady Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. it's just that continuous repetition of the stories over and over and over again so when i was talking about the preface of of the disaster of earth in Paralandra. That's the part I was talking about. While we're talking about it, I just want to bring it up because I've got it available here. <clears throat> I'm going to read a little bit. Um, so Ransom is listening to the unman talking to the lady and telling her all these stories to try to get her kind of off base and to get her to stop listening to the king. And... Um, <clears throat> As the endless speech proceeded, the lady's questions grew always fewer. Some meaning for the words death and sorrow was apparently being created in her mind by mere repetition. And then Ransom goes on to talk about how he finally figured out what all these stories are about. It's always about these brave women that go off and do amazing things. And they have all this support and from their, from their cohort and, uh, What emerged from the stories was rather an image than an idea. The picture of the tall, slender form, unbowed, though the world's weight rested upon its shoulders, stepping forth fearless and friendless into the dark to do for others what those others forbade it to do, yet needed to have done. And so this is this kind of picture of this goddess, right? Um, But then... (laughs) Then, um, but that was all in the background. So let me see if I can, I don't want to lose this now. I've got this weird, sorry. I've got this, my, uh, my Kindle on my iMac is kind of glitchy. So it keeps flipping pages on me. So then he says, um, he goes on to talk about what a man is like, that this is creating, even though man is never mentioned <laughs> by the unman, man, yeah. man is nevertheless being drummed into her head through these stories. And it's a, this description of man. I thought I had, uh, I thought I had clipped it out. Well, like- here it is. Here it is. No word was directly spoken on the subject, but one felt them there, the men, as a huge, dim multitude of creatures, pitifully childish and complacently arrogant, timid, meticulous, unoriginating, sluggish, and ox-like, 
rooted to the earth almost in their indolence, prepared to try nothing, risk nothing, make no exertion, and capable of being raised into full life only by the unthanked and rebellious virtue of their females. It was very well done. That's exactly what I hear the young feminists talking about these days. Hmm. That's so, the exact so description they give of men. And women are doing all the emotional labor. Women are doing all the yeah. work of holding and the world together. Ch check this out. So like a couple of things to point out with that. I think it's really significant that the guy who is speaking these patterns and really providing a mythos, like a, a worldview structure for, for the new Eve he is called the unman. He is the opposite of, he, he is the anti-man in that sense. And he's actually, C.S. Lewis, is, it's so brilliant. He's presenting how the unman is doing exactly the opposite of what C.S. Lewis is trying to do in, in this book. That, that He is corrupting her imagination, her worldview, her way of perceiving the world. Uh, again, with the conversation about music you had the other day about how different cultures perceive different things within music based on the worldview that they're brought up in. If you have a poisoned worldview from the get-go, then you are drawn towards those patterns, even within music, that are inhumane. Like they are things that separate us farther and farther from what is human, from what is good, and from what is right. And that this is exactly the picture of what we see. Uh, the unman is is using the cryptic element, the, that kappa element that, that Ward talks about, that C.S. Lewis referenced, and the way that he creates these atmospheres, he's showing how the enemy creates a darkened atmosphere for the woman to try to poison her imagination. And that poisons the way that she sees all of, sees all of reality. And even her own maker is, is his ultimate goal. Okay. Oh, man. Okay, hold on. You guys just cut me off if you need to. But, like, there's so much in what you brought up. So, so I want to start with, I want to start, Karen, your... You bringing up the two, let's say, visions that the unman is trying to get the the green lady to have of of the woman and of the man. And first of all, I would say, you can go out in the world and and throw a, a dart at the dartboard, and it's like you're gonna you're gonna see those figures of that woman and that man. I'm like, I remember in high school, like our in a boarding school, in like the student lounge, they're always watching um, Family Guy, and like the dad and Family Guy is that. And like, isn't that, Homer? I've never watched The Simpsons, but my impression of Homer Simpson is again, exactly the same thing. Like that brutish, hulking, stupid, earthy man is everywhere. And like over and over and over that's, okay, what's going on there? What he's trying to do is he's trying to, he's trying to bring out the masculine virtues in the, fem, in the, in the green lady. And he's trying to poison the image of masculinity. Now, What's interesting is that's what the unman is doing. What's going on in the story is that Ransom, as a man, is encountering the sphere of the feminine. And what happens to him? He starts out as this awkward, piebald man, right? He actually is a lot like the, un, the man that the unman describes. He can't walk, right? He's being reborn. There's several times he's reborn in Paralandra, but he's being born of a woman, right? It's like he's being born on the planet Paralandra. But like he can't walk. He's like sunburned on one side and pasty on the other side. And he's an out of shape old um, English professor. Right. And and he's naked. So like it's all on display. He's he's not. Let's say he's not a piece of work at the beginning of it. But what happens is when he acts out the role that he's supposed to in defending the green woman against 
let's say, improper invasion by the green man, by the by the unmanned, the green lady by the unmanned, then what he when he emerges from that, like his descriptions are like he kind of looks like Apollo. He's this like he's like a maybe not ripped, but like really fit, like gold all over, like this big full beard. Um, like he is he is a a picture of like full masculinity and a man who's in control of himself. And you even see that in his reflection as he's going to fight the unman um, in chapter at the beginning of chapter 14. I think it is. Is it chapter 14 or chapter 10? Chapter chapter. It's chapter 12 where that starts, because chapter 11 is where it's the inflection point. Like we talked about Thank before. Yes, right? Yeah, that's that's so, like the center point of the entire series is chapter 11 of Paralandra. Yeah. Right, because it's the ransom trilogy. It's when ransom becomes the ransom. That that's the that's the turning point of the whole series. I, I think if you're going to pick one, it'd be that one. And so then from there, he 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 comes back to Earth as this. Let's say he's a because there's masculinity in the sense of Mars, right? Which is let's say something like a more terrestrial masculine. There's another masculine, and that's the masculine of Jupiter, right? That's there's the warrior man. And then there's the king, right? They're both masculine, but they're different kinds of masculine. And so Ransom, when he comes back, he is, let's say, not an avatar, but an instantiation of the sphere of Jupiter. And so then what you see is he becomes the touch point for this man and woman who are doing the same thing again on Earth. And this is in that hideous strength with Mark and Jade Studdock, where you're talking about obedience. Okay, what is Jane's problem? She won't obey. She has to be her own person. She has to have her own life. She won't give herself up to Mark. She won't give herself up to a child. She won't give herself up to the visions that she's receiving, right? She's like being given. I mean, think about she's conceiving of visions, right? Okay, like there's a... (laughs) And then Mark, Mark's problem is that he will follow anyone and everyone, right? He'll just, whoever it is that's in front of him, he'll just obey it, right? So he's, he is, let's see, she, Jane is all the worst worst of the masculine in the in the in a woman and jane is all the worst. sorry and then mark is all the worst of the feminine in a man and what has to happen to the two of them is that they both have to get all of that worked out in one way or another and so you have this interesting bouncing back and forth right ransom is let's say raised to glory by his encounter with the heavenly feminine and i know that there's been some discussion like nate heil and has been bringing up the divine feminine and he and i are going to be talking about the divine comedy so we'll get to hash all this out it's not the divine feminine it's the divinized feminine which is mm. a completely that's a really good distinction to make i don't I believe I like that better feminine. Yeah. i do believe in the divinized feminine the deified feminine very different so so ransom is made glorious by with his encounter with his heavenly feminine and then he comes back and as this sort of paragon of the heavenly masculine he ends up being let's say the point around which Jane orders her femininity. And like, there's a lot of interesting subtlety there in her internal dialogue after she meets him, right? Like she wants to give herself up to him, which is not the right response in, in that way. It's not the right response to the, to, to what she's seeing. It's to, it's to be even more feminine and give herself up to her husband, right? It's, you know, her husband and not this man who looks like Zeus. So there's all these interesting ways in which they're bouncing back and forth. And you see ransom, having these various encounters. And then because he, let's say, is his name, right? Dante makes this point over and over. We are made for our function, not our function for us. And so when Ransom gives himself up, he is 
existing for the sake of his function. And when he does that, it becomes back to earth. He is, um, he's transfigured, right? And then he becomes this vehicle of glory to all the rest of the people at St. Anne's. Again, all this stuff, right? For those who don't know, St. Anne was the mother of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's something to chew on. Um, you know, we want to talk about the role of the feminine in the story of the salvation of the world. It's like of the universe. It's, you know, it's again, he wrote these things. None of it's an accident. So can, can I pick up on, on something? Yeah, like I, that? Just, I just wanted to draw that line of obedience from Ransom on Paralandra all the way down to Mark and Jade Studdick and these sort of corrupted inversions of the particular form of obedience they're supposed to be taking. I just want to pick up exactly that line that you're going on. It's brilliant. Drew or uh, Ted has read a whole lot more than I have, by the way. I'm going to put that up. I'm, I'm very much a neophyte in this in this realm. Um, I haven't even read the Divine Comedy yet, so I'm excited for your series with Nate because um, I'm going to follow it. <laughs> um, but but check this out. So when you're talking about when Ransom has to encounter Jane and Mark, Mark doesn't actually directly encounter Ransom. He has to go about it another way. But one of the things that's brilliant about C.S. Lewis. He's always got these ideas going through his head about a person's perspective and the way that your worldview works and your imagination. You know, there's from a cognitive science perspective, there, there's I'm trying to figure out what the best word is for that, because there are different people that dance around this idea that your worldview is a real thing. Like, even though it's abstract, it's a real thing. And Jordan Peterson is, is kind of the one who gave the substance for me. But it's a thing that can be broken down. And it's also a thing that gets built up. And it gets built up into a, it follows after a particular pattern that it gets exposed to. And you can get into the complexity theory that Verbeke is talking about with like the emanation and the, yeah, the way that consciousness works is it breaks down and it builds back up after a, the pattern that it perceives. So what you see with my favorite line, I think in the whole trilogy is in that hideous strength when Jane encounters the glorified ransom for the first time. She has this like this suspense building up and then she enters into the room and sees him. And in that moment, it's so significant for her uh, that C.S. Lewis actually repeats the same sentence twice within the same couple of pages. He said he says from Jane's perspective, she knew she had been undone. Anything could happen now because it was it was a moment of and, you know, there's a lot of debate of good and bad ways to use the word trauma because it's kind of a buzzword nowadays. But I think of it in terms of what, what trauma is. And I, I'm even working like what PTSD is in a sense is when your worldview breaks down and collapses because you encounter something that cannot be made sense of by your current worldview. That's kind of what beauty does to you. And that's what suffering does to you. They're two parts of a whole. And I've just been thinking about this a lot. Um, she encounters Ransom and it's like a traumatic event for her. Her worldview collapses and she's kind of, she just goes, you know, mentally limp in that moment and knows that the way she has seen the world has been wrong up to that point. And then it slowly starts getting rebuilt by this beauty that she is being confronted with. And she is being, her worldview is being rebuilt in the baptized image of Christ really is what's happening. It's different for Mark because Mark doesn't encounter Ransom, but what he does encounter is this creepy room that they put him in, in the NICE, where they are trying to further distort and corrupt his imagination. If you remember when he's 
basically imprisoned in this room. He keeps seeing things that ought to be patterns in the room that are just so off that it messes with him and he knows there's something off about it but can't quite put his finger on it right away. And it's in a way that's supposed to teach him by experience, their, their evil intent with him is to show him that there is no such thing really as a good pattern or a proper pattern. They're trying to destroy his capacity to even perceive goodness in patterns. And he rebels against it. And it, it, there's this critical moment where they put a crucifix with Christ on the floor and they tell him to stop on it. And he refuses to do it. And what and he says is my, fa my favorite line in the entire trilogy where he says, Looking at the crucifix, he says, it's all bloody nonsense, and I'm damned if I do. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's like, yes, every way, yes. Oh, yeah, every possible way, yes. Well, okay, Corey, I, I'm, I, I love what you're saying, because there's a couple of things there that I want to that I want to use to strengthen what you're saying. One is, I think that Mark's path to redemption is suffering, not beauty. So you're talking about beauty and suffering being these ways that these things that break your your view, right? That undo you. And Jane, it's this encounter with ransom. Mark, it's it's suffering. It's his imprisonment and their attempt to spiritually kill him because that's what that's they're right. doing is spiritual homicide. They're yeah. trying to which they're doing by trying to destroy his notion of the normal. Like I can't overemphasize that point. Normal. Okay, so, okay, but but one of the things that I wanted to say is that moment in which Jane realizes that anything could happen, that's not, in, in as much as that looks like it's a moment of passivity, it's actually not because there's two other, at least two other passages in Lewis's corpus to compare that to. The first one is when the four Pevensey children are at the table in the beaver's house in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And the first time that the name of Aslan is mentioned, yes. he goes through and he describes each of the children's responses to it. And so the three children who don't know who Aslan is, but have not had, let's say, um, communion with the white witch, because that's what he, Edmund has had communion with the white witch. He's eaten and drank, he's eaten and drunk her food and drink. It's like, yeah. His imagination has already been poisoned. He's been poisoned. And so their response to the name of Aslan is completely different. So it's not, let's say, it's not morally neutral the way that you respond to an encounter with something like that. The other one is the creation account in The Magician's Nephew, where you have um, Diggory and Paul and Uncle Andrew. And so they're being presented with a scene of unfolding glory and wonder, which is the creation of Narnia by Aslan. And they're all seeing the same thing, but Uncle Andrew despises it because look, there's an is there when, when we there's a there's a perception and then there's an action of uh, of the will in relation to our perception. And this is what uh, Father Gerard Manley Hopkins was on about with in inscapes and in stress is that you see, but then you it's not even judging. And so Uncle Andrew refuses refuses it. He does not want it. And what that does is when the animals are given the gift of sentience, he cannot hear them. Like he can't oh, hear, so brilliant. He, he can't hear their speech. Like he hears put that buzzing. together. He puts, he hears buzzing and growling and whirring sounds, but he cannot hear what they are saying. Right. It's because so, attention itself is an act of will, right? Yes. It's so foundational to everything 
the way that we see the world and the way that we're able to perceive the world. It's there's a decision that is almost before our decision. And and it's this is where the sovereignty of God, like, you know, that is actually a really important concept because the things that we're exposed to to a degree shapes what we're able to see later yeah. on. Then that's yeah. completely outside of our control to some degree. But at the same time, what we pay attention to, and Karen, you were talking about this earlier, attention is such a central aspect to all of this because what you pay attention to is what shapes your imagination and your worldview and gives you the ability to, for example, understand the animals when they start talking at you. Well, that's crazy. That's the, awesome, the, Ted. I've never the thought thing of that. With, the thing with Andrew is a perfect example of contrary hearing, right? <laughs> he's hearing the opposite of what yes. there is to hear, which means yes. basically he's in disobedience at that moment. Yes. That is yes. the that's the definition of disobedience contrary yeah. yeah that's right so so to go back to this vision that 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 jane has of ransom i was actually pondering this when you were talking about it Corey. i, I the first thing that actually came to my mind given who i'm talking to is uh saint andrew's orthodox church in riverside ah uh, yeah and various other stories that I've heard, particularly the old Catholic cathedrals in Europe, where there's this sense of people walking into these churches and being undone. And I, I just, I, I found that I found that really fascinating. This isn't something I'm going to get into at all, but I think that there's a huge amount there's a huge amount of overlap between what Lewis is talking about with Jane's encounter of ransom and what Charles Williams talks about in the figure of Beatrice. So that'd just be something to ponder. It's, um, it's the thing that pulls you forward. It's not just, it's not well, okay, but this is you you just have to be careful about what you mean by beauty. And this is the thing, you know, I think this is really worth worth talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because Mark Studdock sees what he thinks is beauty in um Lord Feverstone. When Lord Feverstone shows up to take him to nice, right? Also, Compare compare Lord Feverstone taking Mark to Nice at the beginning of that book with the scene in Pinocchio when the coachman takes all the boys to Pleasure Island. Like he's has Jane describes him as having like a shark-like smile, but Mark looks over at him. He's just like his clothes fit, the leather of the car just exudes um like that they're going somewhere important and they have big things to do. And the way that his like bony hands grip the steering wheel, like to mark it's a vision of beauty, but it's a totally corrupt, it's like, it's base. It's a base vision of beauty. And so he gets completely out of whack. But I, one of the things about that hideous strength that I love so much, because here's here's one, of, okay. And Corey, you and I ended up talking a little bit about this when we had that conversation about Paralandra. One of the interesting things about that hideous strength is that the main characters don't accomplish anything. Obvious, right. obvious. They're just there. And so you're like, well, what's the story? You can argue that there's a, there's a lot of finesse that you can, you, you can, you can, you can shade that a lot, but like most. Well, yeah. The hierarchy is important to understand, right? Because they make decisions in terms of attention and obedience. Yes. But to your point, like I mean, it's not what thing, we would normally think of as taking action, right? The no. same thing happens to ransom in Paralandra. You know, why am I here? I'm, I was sent here. Why am I here? And he just sort of, wandering through there for the longest time trying to yeah. figure out why he's there and just listening and trying to react to what seems reasonable to him at the moment but he's not acting on anything until and here i have to make a big confession 
for whatever reason. So I read through the first one of the trilogy and got through it just fine. I, I understood the whole thing. I'm reading Paralandra. It's so beautiful. There's so much lovely stuff in there. And I get, and I finally got, it, it took me a long time to get to this place where I just quoted from. Because every time I pick up that book and I start reading it, within two pages, I'm asleep. And I don't usually fall asleep while I'm reading. And I have no idea why, but it took me huh. a couple of weeks to get through the first half of Paralandra. So I didn't make it to the end and for, for today. So I don't even know what the hinge point was in chapter 11. Well, Karen, oh, I can, yeah. I, my, my, guess, my guess is that was either the devil or some lower demon. That was... <laughs> So I'll, I'll also say you that know you're what? definitely not the only one. I know that sounds funny, but but um, no, I'm I'm completely serious. I I totally <laughs> believe that they can either. So one of the things I heard years ago when I was a new believer was that if you have a problem sleeping at night, just start praying for somebody, and you'll mm. fall asleep almost immediately. Because the enemy doesn't want you praying, so all the things he was putting in your mind to keep you from sleeping. He'll stop doing that so that you can fall asleep just so that you won't pray. <laughs> Amazing. And I thought that was great, you know, or, or, or meditate on scripture, you know, yeah. work on your memory verses or something and you'll just fall asleep immediately. Well, that, that probably great. has a lot to do with why the vigils vigils were so important to the monastics, you know, that, that there's a, there's a real fight right there. I wanted if, if we can spend some time then on that hideous strength. I, there's just some really fun stuff in there that I appreciate. Well, before we go um, to that hideous strength, we completely skipped over the first book, and <laughs> I would love to know. Oh, okay, yeah. It's a very fun book. It's a very interesting book. Um, yes. It didn't have the same visceral impact on me that Paralandra has so far because. When the unman starts in on the lady, I almost can't read it. It's just so painful. I, I, yeah. just, want to, I just want to say, stop, stop, stop listening to him. You know? Yeah. But but in the first book, what do you think that was all about? Is he just like setting a stage or, I mean, what what do you think that was all about? Well, part of it is, and Ward talks about this a little bit as well in, in his book, Planet Narnia, Lewis didn't have a plan to write the whole trilogy when he wrote the first book. He actually had an agreement with Tolkien. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that right. He, they wrote it as a bat, right? Yeah. Yeah. He wrote if Lewis was going to write a book about space travel and the agreement was Tolkien was supposed to write a book about time travel and Tolkien never followed through. And so Lewis was like, well, I guess I got to continue this story. And so it turned into this thing. But I think that's was, part part of why that it feels different at the beginning. But I think that the, the theme of baptism of imagination is is really developed in the first one because it's ransom and his imagination itself that's being baptized like this idea of space as not being an empty void but rather being full of light and full of the music of the spheres and I, I think that's kind of the main theme it's like discovery and you see again this moment of worldview collapse and rebirth uh, a couple of times in the story um, one where he sees the earth outside the window of the spaceship as he's leaving that moment of just sheer panic when like you the, i can't remember exactly the way lewis describes it maybe, maybe you can help me out ted and then also the moment when he's birthed out of the spaceship onto the surface of malacandra and all the imagery is right there he's birthed out of the bottom of the spaceship 
and he's just assaulted by random colors and patterns that he doesn't understand. And there's that great line where, because of course, you can't actually see something unless you know roughly what it is, is a line that C.S. Lewis throws in there. And so he has these moments of like his, his worldview is just being destroyed over and over again and rebuilt with this new concept of what reality is. I, I think that's the main theme of the first book. I would Ted, help me out there. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that that's great. And I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, you know, particularly looking at it from the reading of that this is a book about masculinity primarily. And so there's some things that strike me immediately. One is, is that Mal Malachandra has three sentient races on it. You've got the Hrasa, the Sorns, and the Fiffeltrigi. Uh, I definitely am in the firm camp that that is a silent P at the beginning of the Fiffeltrigi. Uh, <laughs> and so there's, there's something that's, there's, there's a number of interesting things about them. One is that they are uh, all very different from each other. Like visually, they're very different. And then in terms of their activity, they're very different. And they all have this, it, it, it's when you get to the end, when you get to the island, um, uh, I wish I could remember the name of the island where the Oyarsa lives. Does anyone, can anyone help me out there? It's going to come oh. back to me in a second. Anyway, there's this island where the, the Archon of Mars, right? So it's the angelic being that has been given the rule of this planet. It's where it, makes itself manifest because it doesn't dwell there. It makes itself manifest. Uh, Meldalorn, that's what it's called, Meldalorn. Yes. And um, you see them come together there. And so there's, when you have the, you have the Hrasa who are, they're agriculturalists and they're poets, right? So they sing and they farm and they hunt and they live in little villages. And then you have the Sorns who live up on this, on these high plains. It's rarefied. I mean, come on. They live in basically in ivory towers. And, but they're they're extremely learned and they're astronomers and they're herdsmen. And then you have the Fiffeltrigi who you only encounter a little bit, but they live down in the deep parts of the planet. They mine and they make things, they craft things. So one of the things that Lewis is doing there, I think, is he's trying to present, well, he's trying, look, he's he's presenting a world that is, that is not fallen, but dangerous, which is extremely important, first of all, in terms of, because, if we think that danger is equivalent with moral evil, we're all sunk. And like the same with suffering. Pain and suffering are not moral evils. If we think that they are, we're, we're done. And just like read Jacques Ellul, read Jacques Ellul if you want that in, in, in um, the technological society. He's got this piece at the end where he talks about the notion that the goal of humanity is to increase happiness and reduce suffering. And he's like, if we get to the point where we can do that chemically or electronically, we're, we're just done. We'll and cease so to be human. We'll cease to be human. So he's doing a couple of things. One is he's, he's presenting unfallen hardship, right? Which is a real thing. And it's, and he's trying to present it, I think in a way that's deeply compelling. He's presenting the, because masculinity is in a particular sense, primarily focused outward on things, right? So as a general rule, I'll just say this is a general rule. I think the pattern is something like the work of the feminine is internal and the work of the masculine is external. You see this on a basic biological level, right? Where women, when they're bearing children, do a whole bunch of work inside themselves, right? That men simply cannot do, right? And that actually pregnancy then prevents them from doing certain external work that has to be done. And so you're in my in my reading of it it's something like if you took 
sort of the English Shire village where people have various men in the village have various trades and professions. And then you transported that or transposed that to some sort of science fantasy setting, you would get these three races who are all living in this sort of um, unfallen economic harmony in which they're all have these overlap, slightly overlapping, but differentiated patterns of life. They're capable of, because because Ransom is going over and over, who's ruling here? Who's in charge? Do you envy the others? Are you trying to take them over? So he's got all these poisoned patterns of male-male interaction in his head, and he can't figure out why it is that, say, the Fifth Trigi would just make stuff because they like to, or why it is that the Sorns don't rule the Hrasa because they're more learned th than them. And so, yeah, on notice, and so notice that he assumes isn't, isn't that the it highest exactly the same picture, it. though. I mean, did did he already know the main story of Lord of the Rings when he wrote this? Because isn't it also Middle Earth, the elves, and the the uh, dwarves? There, there is a lot of of that. I think because that the Rasa would be like the Middle Earth people, and the Sorns would be the elves, and the Triggy would be the dwarf. Yeah, there's a lot of similarity in those in those patterns, and I'm sure he had something like that in the back of his mind. I don't think I the think Lord of the Rings had been published, but he was still talking to Tolkien while he was I, writing these. I think they're just drinking from the same well, like in in terms of the way that Tolkien constructed those the 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 the, the, the beings of Middle Earth. I just had a conversation with Emma that I think I probably just published while we were on here about on fairy stories by Tolkien. And like it, it, it's hard the cauldron to, of story when you, when you when you read when you read that in terms of say the contents of the lord of the rings you notice there there's much less discontinuity between what came before and what he wrote we're all just blind to everything that he wrote before his notion of elvendom of fairy is actually much more like the elves and dwarves of middle earth than we think uh, because 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 fairy splits and you end up with high fantasy of tolkien and this sort of degraded Victorian um, cowslips and daisy fairies of, you know, obnoxious coloring books that people give my children. Um, and we don't see that they lived together at some point. And so, so I think, yeah, I think they're, I think in terms of the similarity there, Karen, I've, I've seen that several times, the Fiffeltrigi in particular really feel like the dwarves, but Tolkien's, Tolkien's races are sundered, right? They're not living in this unfallen harmony that the people of, Malacandra are living in, um, particularly when you read uh, the Silmarillion. There's there's a like this deep sense of disconnection and tragedy between those peoples. So, so that that's one part of it. You, you've got all these races interacting in the way that they're 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 kind of pursuing these different but complementary means with each other and living in this um, organic harmony that really reminds me of sort of maybe never fully instantiated, but the vision of of village life basically and then you have to me the high point the one of the high points of the book is the when they when they go in front of oyarsa and weston and weston and dick divine are there and they have to explain to the oyarsa what's going on and ransom is translating it in his really poor <laughs> really poor malachandran i mean it's just so dang brilliant it's it, because what he's doing is he's he's well, it's working on several levels. He's because Weston comes forward with the sort of imperialist, materialist, scientific, conquer the stars story that sounds really compelling when he says it, but it's sophistry. 
And so Lewis has presented this. Sounds uh, very modern though, doesn't it? It's deeply modern. Yeah. It's, it's well, we pick it up again in that hideous strength when Lord Feverstone, who is Dick Divine, says, um, you know, that we are we're approaching man immortal and man ubiquitous, which if you're wondering, that's transhumanism. If if you want to know what the the, the 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 deepest enemy of that of that whole the whole trilogy is transhumanism. Like that's it's the spirit of transhumanism that is threading its way all through there. Emphasis and so, on the spirit. What'd you say? Emphasis on the spirit. Emphasis on the spirit because it's transhuman. And so what happens when you try to make a man immortal is you end up doing things like severing a man's head and hooking it up to hoses and ending up some getting demons from from the moon, leading your scientific organization instead of actually making man glorious because that's actually how it works if you're wondering Paso so, just posted a video today on pretty much exactly that subject because it was about conspiracies hmm. and how conspiracies work because that that is how how they kind of work I, it's frustrating i think to listen to people talk about conspiracies to me because there's always this base assumption that there's like an explicit cabal of people making all these plans and like getting their minions to do their bidding when that's not the case at all it's it's an idea that everybody is united by it's a principality it's a spirit it's a it's a thing that everybody can look at and in a disaggregated way sometimes in a centralized way but usually in a decentralized way everybody oriented towards the same thing starts behaving in a way that looks coordinated this is this whole idea of complexity theory again I'd love to hear you talk about that in a biological framework at some point. Well, what what pops into my head right there is this whole idea of the false flag operation. The the spirit that is inhabiting the spirit that's causing all this conspiracy is the same spirit that is clouding our minds so that we get all concerned about this elite cabal. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Get your shift your focus off ourselves and our own responsibility as individuals right. on this planet, and shift our focus over onto this elite cabal. Then we can get all worried about it and nervous about it, and then we can look like fools when we're proven wrong. And and that's the kind of thing that happens in politics all the time. Set mm. up this straw man that we're all attacking, that we're all afraid of, and then all of a sudden, poof! It shows that we're just ignorant savages. And then it switches over to the other side and they do the same thing. And I mean, we see that happening everywhere. Yeah. So, and and it, back to the worldview thing that that poisons your perception of reality such that you become blind to what you're actually supposed to be doing. It becomes it's not even a thing that you oppose. It's just a complete non-factor that you don't know how to perceive anymore because you're so focused on what you think the enemy is. And you, you end up looking foolish, certainly, but the enemy's intent is not that we focus on this, it's that we don't notice this, what we're actually supposed to be doing. This idea of St. Anne's as yeah. being passive, in a sense, like in one sense, they're they're passive because, you know, McPhee always wants to take the active route and go arm themselves and go attack physically the NICE or something like that. But what they actually do is they remain obedient in a way that's that they don't fully understand. Like it, it comes before understanding what's actually going to happen. But by being obedient with the little piece of the puzzle that they're given, that is what 
it enables the spirits to, to come down, the angels to come down and do the bidding of Melildil, which ends up looking a lot like a catastrophe. And it's this crazy, miraculous thing that comes out of nowhere and is totally unexpected. It never happens the way that you anticipate. And what yet... you just described there sounds like Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen? I, I haven't Ted seen. Lasso? Oh. I've only seen the first season, so I don't know. Season Do two and three—that's that, just like that, that's just like a capsule. If you could represent that in the world with lots of vulgarity. <laughs> so okay, but but what? Okay, We're, we'll go over to what you guys are talking about because there's some really wonderful stuff in that hideous strength. One of the things that I think Lewis does really well with the, the with the nice with the nice at Belbury is at first it does seem like this cabal. Right, it looks like a cabal. But the longer you spend there with Mark, the more you realize that actually no one's in the driver's seat, right? You get all the way up to Frost and Wither, which if you want to do have some fun, compare the names of the people at Belbury and at St. Anne's, right? So you've got Fairy Hardcastle and you've got Miss Ironwood, right? Those are types, those are opposite types. They're both single older women, one of them deeply corrupt and ogreish. The other one, something like an abbess, right? This wonderful woman. Okay. And then you've got like Frost and Wither. Think about their names there. And if you, if what Lewis is doing there is taking the dualism, the mind-body duality and and cutting one half of it off and then making that a person. So Wither, Wither denies the body and that destroys him and, and Frost denies the mind and that destroys him. So you've got all these interesting pairs pinging back and forth between these characters. But when you realize that Frost and Wither, who are supposed to, who, who everyone else views as being in charge, they're even trying to kill each other, right? They're like, they want to eat the other person. Like literally it's, it, at points it seems like. And that's, I think that's a much better way of looking at these things than this notion that there's, yeah, there's, there's the people in the council room with their cloaks, right? Because what's happening is you just have these people who are trying to get a little bit further up and the demons are more than willing to use that, which is why I am very firmly of the conviction that the political is a symptom of the spiritual in almost every case that the political is a symptom of the spiritual. And I think that's what Lewis is trying to say because from the outside, it does look like what is um, uh, William Hinks has this great line about it. he's like, yeah, if you want to hang out with a bunch of foreign fascists trying to take away um, every Englishman's cow and wife, then go ahead. But I'm I'm out. Is what he says to Mark Studdick about it. And it does look like maybe like something like a political coup or something. And it seems like this well organized and they've got their propaganda machine and they're doing all this stuff in the government. But in the end. No, no one's in control. And the way Lewis does it from a literary perspective, I think is beautiful. There's, you see Mark, you know, Mark Suddick's going on his journey. He gets arrested. He's being objectified. And he's always in, in terror of the fact that he's displeased these people who are above him in the organization. And then there's this one phone conversation that Wither has with some other character that we've met once or twice. And he, he presents it with this. He's like, just remember, he's the guy who's in charge of excavating for Merlin. And he's found the, the burial chamber for Merlin and it's empty. And so Withers on the phone to them and he says, just remember that if you do anything that looks like you're stepping outside of your proper bounds of, of authority and responsibility, you know, you'll be in major trouble. And if you show anything that looks like a lack of initiative and anything other than undying support for the organization, then you're also sunk. And you realize it's like, 
the guy, the, the, the guy's doomed, obviously. I mean, they're just like letting him hang around until they want to kill him. And he says, if you do a good job with this, maybe I could convince very hard, Mrs. Hardcast, Miss Hardcastle or Mark Studdick that you're worth having around. And all of a sudden you realize everything everyone has said is a lie because they've got Mark in prison. Mark has no idea who this guy is, but they've all been telling him that Mark's this higher up who's displeased with the way that he's been acting. It's like no one's in the driver. No person is in the driver's seat. And I mean, what you end up with is the head, right? It's the head that's ruling everything. But I, I just, I mean, I, I love it. I love the way that he presents it as. That's obvious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, anyway, I, I really, and, and it's, and then, and the connection between, so you have Lewis is, Lewis is lining up all these things of, let's say this negative, let's say political corruption being the result of spiritual corruption, spiritual and spiritual corruption. And um, let's say rejection of wisdom or something like that being closely aligned. And so you've got all of these people at Bellberry who are all spinning out of control in different ways. You've got Fairy Hardcastle and her sort of ogreish lesbianism. And then you've got Full Strato, the eunuch, the Italian eunuch who wants to sterilize the world. I mean, like all of these, <laughs> you look at that and I was like, I remember reading this as a teenager and being like, oh, that's terrible. And now I read it and I'm like, oh, that's like right that's now. Real life. <laughs> That's just life. <laughs> and one of the things that I think is great about it too is how he he does all of that and he, he shows a real picture of how things actually work, especially in a bureaucracy where you see this sense that everybody's organized along the same lines. And yet, even though most of the time there is no actual like cabal of people in their cloaks, there are spiritual realities associated with this that we in our materialist sense don't always know don't always i mean i put myself in this camp i don't know how to perceive these things and i i think that the way that he brings that in is so brilliant and i wanted to tie this series into uh dionysius the areopagite a little bit too i've only just started reading the celestial hierarchy for the first time and it's like it's i, I don't know if you've looked at it at all ted but it's, it's, been, it's been I, i've started to do a lot of like uh note taking and, and highlighting in the books that i read I started like highlighting and I just realized that if I didn't stop, I would highlight every single line in the whole book. So I, I know Karen, you haven't read um, the end of Paralander yet, but I, I don't think this will provide any spoilers, but oh, Ted, I, I don't, don't know mind. If I don't mind. I may never get to the end of it because every time I start reading it, I fall asleep. <laughs> just power through. Oh, once you've gotten to the I'm part I'm getting where, lots where... of rest lately though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That the once, once, it sounds like you're at the part where it starts to get mind-blowing, too. You're not the only one who says that, by the way. A lot of people find the first half of Paralander to be really, really boring. Um, I, no, I don't find it boring. That's the funny thing. I have half of it highlighted. I'm just enchanted <laughs> by it, and, and there's so many ideas there, and I could write essays and essays about it. I'm just saying, I was trying to power through so I could finish for today, and I've taken more daytime naps in the last two weeks than I have in my whole life, because I never fall asleep in the day. That's, That's very so... peaceful, isn't it? Once you yeah. get to chapter 11, like you won't be able to put the book down for the rest of the time that okay. you're reading it. Guaranteed. Okay. So, uh, so but I, I want, so at the very end of Paralandra, uh, Ransom uh, meets two, the two Oyarsa of Malacandra, who he's met before, and the Oyarsa of, of Venus, of Paralandra. And there's this moment where uh, Ransom is conversing with them 
and they're waiting for the king and queen, the, the Adam and Eve of that world to arrive. And these two spirits, they're essentially angels, are asking Ransom, what's the best way for us to appear so that the king and queen will, you know, have a sense of what they're looking at? And it's it's kind of a brief thing, but first of all, they call themselves archons. I, I don't know where else the history of that word comes from other than a reference to the archon of Athens, uh, like the person who was essentially mayor for a year in Athens in ancient Greece. Um, Dionysus the Areopagite, of course, in, in Acts 17, is one of the few Greeks that are converted when Paul comes and addresses uh, the, the Athenians at the Areopagus, which is like the high place of philosophical debate where the archons, all the previous archons of Athens were the ones that were invited to be a part of this gathering. So like they're like the philosophical elite of the most philosophically elite city in essentially the world at that point. And so Dionysus the Areopagite, and he he wrote this this stuff, or you know, there's there's debate on who actually wrote this, but it has his name attached to it. Uh, and he has a thing that he wrote called the Celestial Hierarchy. Uh, I think the Pajot brothers pull from him a lot in this stuff that, that, that they work on. Um, but I found, he, he talks about angels. He has a whole concept of angels in this hierarchy that uh, provides the foundation to a lot of our understanding of, of angels in Christian mythology. All that to say, I noticed a couple of interesting similarities. I'm going to read briefly from Paralandra here. Uh, let's see. So, so the two angels are changing their form to demonstrate to Ransom, like, should we, it's almost like they're putting on different clothing. Like, should we wear this? Should we wear with, should we wear this when the king and queen arrive? Um, so the Archon of Paralandra says, look on this and tell us how it deals with you. The very faint light, the almost imperceptible, imperceptible alteration in the visual field which betokens an Eldil vanished suddenly. Uh, so that's the way they normally appear. They're like this light you, uh, that, that you can almost barely not perceive. The rosy peaks and the calm pool vanished also. A tornado of sheer monstrosities suddenly seemed to be pouring over ransom. Darting pillars filled his eyes, lightning pulsations of flame, talons and beaks and billowy masses of what suggested snow volleyed through cubes and heptagons into an infinite black void. Stop it, stop it, he yelled, and the scene cleared. He gazed around blinking on the field of lilies and presently gave the Eldila to understand that this kind of appearance was not well-suited to human sensations. Look then on this, said the voices again, and he looked with some reluctance, and far off between the peaks on the other side of the little valley, there came two great rolling wheels. There was nothing but that, concentric wheels moving with a rather sickening slowness one inside the other. There was nothing terrible about them if you could get used to their appalling size, but there's also nothing significant. And then finally, they, they take a form that looks more like what we would imagine to be angels. Uh, and they're pretty good matches for what uh, they conceived uh, Mars and Venus to actually look like in Greek mythology. Now compare that to what I found in chapter two of the celestial hierarchy from Dionysus the Areopagite. I must describe the sacred forms given to these heavenly ranks by scripture, for one has to be lifted up through such shapes to the utter simplicity of what is there. 
We cannot, as mad people do, profanely visualize these heavenly and godlike intelligences as actually having numerous feet and faces. They are not shaped to resemble the brutishness of oxen or to display the wildness of lions. They do not have the curved beak of the eagle or the wings and feathers of birds. We must not have pictures of flaming wheels whirling in the skies of material thrones made ready to provide a reception for the deity of multicolored horses or of spear carrying lieutenants, which is what Mars ends up looking like there in Paralandra. So I've, I've, I've only just started reading this book, but you can see very clearly that Lewis was referencing Dionysius, I think, when he was thinking about how to present these angels and he was toying with all sorts of different stuff. I, I don't know if you've noticed that, Ted. And I also haven't finished uh, reading Planet Narnia, so I don't know if he talks about that at all either. Well, can I ask a clarifying question first? Is that the one that they call Pseudo-Dionysius? Yes, yeah. Because okay. there's, uh, from these actual writings, there's disagreement as to whether it was actually St. Dionysius, the Areopagite, who wrote them. I think probably a lot of modern people would say that it was somebody else who took his name. Uh, I don't know enough to have an opinion on that. Well, the thing but I it's heard part of the church that somebody mythology. else later on in history didn't want to lose some of the early writings, but wanted to give more cachet to their writing in order to preserve the early writings. They needed to give more cachet to it. So they took on the name of, of Dionysius in order to make themselves, not make themselves look better, but in order to make the writing have more visibility. Is that... Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what I've heard as as far as one of the theories from where it where it came from. So Alexander Clay making videos about Jordan Peterson to get out the algorithm's attention. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, Corey, I don't know. I mean, if you spend time with say the discarded image and the allegory of love, uh, it's way beyond my bent, my my pale to be able to, to tell you whether or not he was pulling directly from the heavenly higher the celestial hierarchies from from Dionysius, or if he was simply, let's say, so soaked in the people that took that as a foundational text that it came through in his writing. I mean, it's just as I was looking at um, <clears throat> Saint Hil some stuff about Saint Hildegard today. And there's this wild, this wild illumination that she's got of the nine social hierarchies. Um, those show up in the Divine Comedy. Um, I mean, that stuff. You, I think, I think it's the nine hierarchies are there. Uh, Daniel Toma talks about them. Karen, I don't know if we'll get into that next time we talk with him. Probably not. But he brings up the 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 nine. The, it's a hierarchy of. It's a trinity of trinities. You've got three sets of three angels. That this is where we're getting what we're getting from Saint Dionysius. And he he relates those that three threefold hierarchy to to the ecclesiastical and the hierarchy and the, the the hierarchy of the laity. So, I mean, that stuff is so deep in the Latin West <laughs> that when you take someone like C.S. Lewis, who spent his time with like his whole professional career with medieval texts, uh, I'd be hard pressed to say, yeah, he's pulling straight from Pseudo Dionysius. But mm. these these ideas of look, man. The medievals are so much more subtle than we give them credit for. Like they didn't when they when they drew pictures of angels the way that they did, they knew the learned anyway knew full well that they're just. It, it was for for our for our sake that the angels took on those appearances. 
I mean, heck, they, I mean, this is what saving the appearance is about and what the, and what the Galileo affair was all about was the medievals were deeply, deeply aware of the difference between appearances and reality. It's only as moderns who go back and look at medieval illustrations of the cherubim and think that that's what they thought cherubim looked like. It's like no, no, everyone knew. Everyone knew that that's not how it, how it is. If you look at Eastern iconography, the icon for the Trinity is the three angels that visit Abraham at the Oaks of Oaks of Memory. Yeah. It's yeah. like everyone knew that when you made an illustration of an angel, you weren't showing what they looked like in their body because everyone knew they didn't have bodies. It's yeah. like, well, uh, th that particular vision, though, comes from Daniel and Ezekiel, right? Which were actual yes. visions described by the prophets. So, yeah. you know, it's not yeah. like they're just out of nowhere either. Well, and my my little bit of exposure, say, from reading from from the stuff that I was reading about St. Hildegard is that there, I mean, there's also visions there are various mystics and visionaries in the middle ages that, that were seeing things that were similar. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like, how do you talk about, how do you talk about spirits that don't have bodies? Because St. Thomas Aquinas says all of our knowledge comes to us through the senses. And so there is this real difficulty in coming to term, coming, connecting with that, which is invisible, that which doesn't have a body. And uh, what was I, is I think uh, this is a lecture from the Thomistic Institute, but it was, there's this notion that in Adam, Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden, right? And so they, they know, they like, they see their primary, their primary access to knowledge of God is through sight. It's, they're not experiencing the beatific vision, but they see God. Okay. And I think Lewis is presenting something like that with the green lady. Well, post fall, it is hearing and not seeing that becomes our primary way of <clears throat> correcting ourselves and coming into relationship with, with God and with, with, with ultimate reality. To your point, Karen, about this connection between obedience and disobedience, about hearing rightly and hearing wrongly, hearing against. And in Catholic theology, you see this very, very clearly because the center point of, of the Catholic spiritual life is in the Eucharist, where where not only is the divinity of Christ hidden, but the manhood of him is hidden as well. And so how do you know the thing that looks like bread and wine at the front of the, the, the church building is in fact Christ? Is because you've heard. So you access that knowledge not through sight, but through hearing. And the same problem exists with, say, spirits and angels. How do you know, how do you recognize them when all of your knowledge comes to you through the senses it's it's by hearing. Hearing is what gives you access to that, and which is why we like read Zeus Dionysius. So so that that's awesome. Thank thank you, Ted. That's actually really so. So think about this now. He he describes angels in this way in Paralandra, and then in that hideous strength. Back to this bureaucracy thing, you mm -hmm. know, it, it could be easy to look at that and say, oh well, if th there's a demon in this story. And the demon is finally made physically manifest by the head at the end. This terrible head that's you know, giving an actual voice to the demons. That's not strictly just the case, because if you're if you're looking at how Pajot is talking, you could almost make the argument that the demon is manifesting itself by embodying itself in the bureaucracy itself through the, yes. the multiplicity of everybody participating in it. And the head is like a further instantiation of that in a fractal sense. And like it is the principality kind of condensing into a, a very specific form 
But what yeah. gives body to the demon itself is all of the members of the NICE behaving with a particular attention oriented towards it. And so it's almost like an evolution of his his thoughts on what what an angelic being is, maybe. That, I don't know what you think about that. I'd, I'd also like to throw a question out here because, I mean, I don't know. But um, so you're talking about the nice, N-I-C-E, being, say, an embodied spirit of some kind. <clears throat> But doesn't the wider world around the nice have some responsibility for having taken their eyes off the ball, so to speak? Nobody was paying attention. Nobody yes. was really thinking about how their tax money was being used to support this. Yeah. Nobody and other people were thinking, wow, this is going to be so good for the community. There's going to be lots of building going on and and uh, new jobs and, and everybody got all tied up in the glamour of it so so it's more than just the spirit of what's going on in the bureaucracy itself it's also the spirit of dullness or <clears throat> lack of attention that's going on in the wider world around that yeah i think that's right and i i think that's also why uh, uh this idea of the machine that paul kingsnorth talks about a lot is really helpful because you know they're just like in the, the good hierarchy, maybe the hierarchy of reality where there's a center and then you move out farther towards the periphery. I think that's probably true of, of bad hierarchies as well. Like you, you have the bureaucracy and like, as it goes in towards the center and up towards the top, you get more and more towards, you know, the, the people who are at the center of the cabal and then the head itself, once it makes itself manifest, but, but you're right. And that every, everybody, by the way, they exist in the world can, give the ability for this thing to exist and you could say they maybe exist on the fringe but they're still part of the machine that's operating with this strange unity to give it the space and and there's a sense and this is this is i don't know what you both will think about this but my sense of how this works in reality is just us like in our world just by existing in a fallen world we participate in the fallenness of these I don't know, beings, machines. Uh, and that's part of the sin that we participate in, in a communal sense, rather than an individual sense. You know, there's maybe individual sin and communal cultural sin. Just by existing in the world in the way that we do, even if you have no, you know, yeah. intention with respect to the evil that's going on, you know, by participating in it, we participate in the evil that's being undertaken. And so, so when we pray, Lord, have mercy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and and all the all the litanies, like pay attention to the litanies of prayer. I mean, they're the opposite of that. Karen Lewis has a great response at the very end of that hideous strength. So I'm just going to read a little passage. I wanted to ask about Edgestow. That's the town where the nice is, which ends up being wiped from the face of the earth by the angelic powers. I want to ask about Edgestow, said Mother Dimble. Aren't Merlin and the Eldils a trifle well wholesale? Did all Edgestow deserve to be wiped out? Who are you lamenting, said McPhee, the jobbing town council that would have sold their own wives and daughters to bring the nice to Edgestow? Well, I don't know much about them, said she, but in the university, even Bracton itself, we all knew it was a horrible college, of course, but did they really mean any great harm with all their little, their fussy little intrigues? Wasn't it more silly than anything else? Oh, I, said McPhee, they were only playing themselves, kittens letting on to be tigers, but there was a real tiger about and their play ended by letting her in. 
They have no call to complain if when the hunter's after her, he lets them have a little bit of lead in their guts too. That'll learn them not to keep bad company. Well, then the fellows of other colleges, what about Northumberland and Dukes? I know, said Deniston, one sorry for a man like Churchwood. I knew him well, he was an old dear. All his lectures were devoted to proving the impossibility of ethics, though in private life he'd walk 10 miles rather than leave a penny debt unpaid. But all the same, was there a single doctrine practiced at Belbury which hadn't been preached by some lecturer at Edgestow? Oh, of course, they never thought anyone would act on their theories. No one was more astonished than they when, the, when what they'd been talking about for years suddenly took on reality. But it was their own child coming back to them, grown up and unrecognizable, but their own. So, yes, Karen, I completely agree with you. It is. And you compare that to the, the conversation that um, Merlin and Ransom have where Merlin says, well, why don't we go to the king? Ransom said the king's powerless. Well, what about what about the French king? What about the emperor? There's no emperor. And he's basically like, can we go to one of the kings of the East? And there's this heartbreaking passage where Ransom says, like, no, the poison has spread everywhere. And everywhere you go, you will find men worshiping machines and sterile beds. Um, sterility is a very interesting theme. And there's some some again, there's 30 hours of stuff to talk about in here. But but Lewis very much says, yes, we let's say we build the nest for these things when we when we let down our guard. When we start, when we turn away from, from wisdom, we turn when we turn from God. When we pay attention to the wrong things. Right. So I think all the time, all the time about our Lord's parable where he says, a man has an unclean spirit cast out of him. And the spirit goes and wanders in, in hard places. And when it comes back, it finds the man's, like the, the, the inside swept clean and put in order. And what does he do? He goes and he finds seven more spirits unclean. More seven spirits more unclean than itself, and they come and they take up residence with a man. It's like, why can you take up residence in the man, even though everything's been put in order because the house is empty? And so, morally speaking, you can look at Western civilization as in a lot of ways being swept and put in order. I mean, this is whole Tom Holland's whole argument, right? That mm. the moral landscape of the West was completely and utterly rewritten by what Christ did. But here's the problem. If the house does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in it, those old spirits are going to come back. And it will be, have been our fault for not having kept the house swept or for not having had the house filled, right? You can have your nice society, your you know good order, good morals, all of this stuff, have your society orderly and clean. But if you don't, if the Holy Spirit isn't dwelling in it, you better watch out for what comes and nests in, in the heart of your civilization. And now the other side of that is what Peugeot says, which is that the world holds together because of the saints. And so St. Anne's, you know, one of the central, one of maybe the key lines of the book is, uh, I think I think it's um, uh, Camilla Denniston says, as, as one of the poets says, uh, sometimes the altar must be raised in one place in order that the fire of heaven might fall in another. And that's what they're doing. And I think, if you'll forgive me, C.S. Lewis and his Anglicanism doesn't understand how this works all that well. So he has this notion of these people, these, let's say, spiritually obedient people coming together and being the defense for the world. And I'd say, yes, but that's the monasteries and the abbeys. It's like that's 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 what the Western civilization and and the Christian East had for 
you know, 1600 years is they had these men and women who are going off and, and, you know, it's like the Benedictines are praying all the time. The Carmelites are praying all the time. And like, I know that. And it's like, and so Pajot says that the end of the world and the saints being taken up into heaven is the same thing that the world holds together because of the saints. And it doesn't take that many glory be to God. Like that's what, what our Lord, I think part of what our Lord is saying when he says you're the salt of the earth, right? It's, you know, you can salt cure meat with like 3% salt by weight. It's not that much. You can keep the whole thing from spoiling. But when you take that rest of that salt out, when you take, when you, when you dip down below, all of a sudden you, you make room for, let's say the botulism, the botulism and the spoilage bacteria and rot sets in and it gets putrid. Uh, and no one wants to be there for it. So absolutely, like we are, we're making a space for it. It's not as though it's, oh, it's them. It's, it, it has to happen in every single person's heart. And this is, this is the thing. So how do you keep nice from happening? You don't, you keep nice from happening by daily acts of obedience. And this is the thing that I'm like, so dead set on people understanding is the way the world holds together is by people being faithful on a daily basis. And like you see what Merlin says in the story is if that Mark and Jane had simply been faithful to their wedding vows and conceived a child, then none of this would have happened. And so, but there's two sides to that. You can't know what your private disobedience is going to let in. You have no idea what that's going to do. On the other hand, you also have no idea what your private obedience is going to do and so what we're left with is we read stories so that we can see how these things play out but at the end of the day it just comes down to are you going to follow god like you specifically when no one's watching because you cannot have a consequentialist mindset because you just don't know you just don't know and you don't know what on time what time scale you're talking about and you don't know you, you just can't see where the effects are so what do you do you obey. And and we read this fairy story to my kids last night called Mother Hildegard from Robert, uh, Robert Pyle's The Wonder Clock. And there's this little throwaway line where the, the princess falls into a well and she ends up at Mother Hildegard's house. And she, Mother Hildegard says, I'll, I'll basically I'll send you back home if you serve me for a year and a day. And so she goes about her business blowing on the fire and sprinkling water on the clothes and says, Mother Hildegard's house was a strange place. What the princess didn't know was that whenever she blew the bellows on the fire, that the winds blew on the brown earth and spun the windmills and ground the meal for everyone. And when she sprinkled water on the clothes, the rains fell on the earth and watered the crops and the grass. And it's like, that is actually true. That's beautiful. When, when you take care of the things that are given to you, that is one of the principal vehicles of God's mercy and grace in this world. And you don't get to demand to see it. You read the stories so that you can believe it. And then when you die, and if you die in Christ, then you'll get to see it. And you'll see how all those meals for your kids, right? All those little conversations that you had with people, that your evening prayers and on and on and on and on. Then you'll get to see. But like for us right now, it's daily obedience gratitude for what god gives us and i just there isn't another way to save the world <laughs> that's great ted so Corey, i'm going to give you the last word i have nothing to add after that that was a great homily right there <laughs> well um, 
we we still spent most of our time on that hideous strength, but I think that's because it's earthly and it's easier maybe for us to understand the implications of it. So this was amazing. Thank you guys so much. Um, I hope we moved the needle forward just a little bit. I know you you all have been having a lot of conversations about this, so I don't know if anything new came out, but. No, it did for me. I'm like I said, I'm new at this. Like I, I was expecting to to listen a lot more than I talked today. So I'm 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 enjoying myself. Thank you, Karen, for giving us the space to have more conversation. Well, uh, thank you for talking to someone who doesn't know anything. <laughs> I don't I know appreciate anything. that because you both have read so much more than I have. And uh, anyway, it can was I, great. Can I just one little thing? In yeah. in the epistle to Philemon, Saint Paul says that he he wishes that um, he would that we would be active in sharing our faith, that we would know the fullness of the riches to which we've been called. So there's something about this sharing of these things that helps us see how rich they are. So thank you for giving us that, Karen. I appreciate it. Well, it's so great to be reminded every time I have one of these conversations on the fullness of the riches of the glory of God and his deep grace. And so thank you guys so much. Have a great week. You too. You too. Bye. -bye.